Welcome everyone to Two Guys in the Dark Tower Came, a podcast where we discuss the characters, connections, and deeper meanings of Stephen King's magnum opus, The Dark Tower. I'm Jay Russo. And I'm Sean McGurr. You can find more information about the podcast at twoguystothedarktowercame.com. You can also email us at twoguysdarktower at gmail.com. In this episode, we'll discuss The Little Sisters of Illyria, a Dark Tower short story found in the anthology Everything's Eventual. Let's start the show! Prior to the events of the Gunslinger, Roland DeShane enters the deserted town of Illyria, where he is set upon by slow mutants and knocked unconscious. When he awakens, he finds himself under the care of nun-like women who aren't what they seem. The injured Roland quickly realizes that these women pose a greater danger than the slow mutants. Greetings, constant listeners. Want to support the show? Check out our Patreon page to learn how you can access exclusive content. We've set up three patron levels, Apprentice, Gunslinger, and Cotet. Each level provides rewards as a thank you from us to you. Find out more information at patreon.com slash twoguysdarktower. Thanks again for being a loyal listener. Jay, this is our first foray into sort of the extended Dark Tower universe, if you will. Yeah, it's pretty exciting. Yeah, I guess you could make a case maybe for book four and a half, The Wind Through the Keyhole, but I think King has sort of adopted that as an integral part of the story by numbering it 4.5. But this story stands outside of the Dark Tower saga itself, specifically as far as the loop that binds books one and seven together. I was just going to make that point. Book 4.5, Wind Through the Keyhole, it has all of the same major characters that we've been spending time with since book two. It does feel like it is of a piece. And it's not just a continuation of the story or even a flashback. It does nestle exactly in between books four and five in terms of the chronology of Eddie, Susanna, Jake, and Oi, along with Roland. But this story as you say, is outside of the loop. It happens before the events of the gunslinger and therefore before the moment in in time that the tower resets Roland's story. As far as we know, everything that Roland goes through in Little Sisters of Valoria, he only did this one time. Once. All right. Well, before we get too far into our discussion of the story itself, as we have done for the books, let's talk a little bit about the publication of this story because I do think it's interesting. So it was first published in an anthology called Legends, which is edited by Robert Silverberg, and it had a very interesting premise. Silverberg had asked numerous fantasy authors to write novellas set in their fictional universe. In addition to King in the Dark Tower universe, get George R. R. Martin with A Song of Ice and Fire and Ursula Le Guin. Anne McCaffrey, Terry Pratchett, Orson Scott Card, and others. So there's a total of 11 stories. That anthology won a Locus Award for Best Anthology in 1999. And then there was a a sequel to it, as well as a sci-fi spinoff called Far Horizons. I have not seen the actual Legends book, Jay, but I believe that's where you first encountered the story, yes? When I first heard the story existed, I went to find it wherever I could. And at the time, the only place that you could find it was in a copy of Legends. 
And I was fortunate enough to be able to find a paperback edition where they did a strange thing where the publisher split Legends into two volumes and then put out two different paperbacks. And I bought the one with the Stephen King story in it because that's what I was going after. And at the time, I had never heard of George R.R. Martin. <laughs> kind of bummed now that the other volume of the paperback is the one that had the Martin story. I have since found and read that. I think it's one of his uh, Duncan Egg stories. I believe you're right. But my copy of Little Sisters, it has a forward by Silverberg, and it also has some very interesting illustrations that I'm actually not that big a fan of. We'll talk about that a little later. <laughs> but I think I had a very different experience reading the book this way than what Sean did when he read it in Everything's Eventual. Yeah, so Everything's Eventual is where it was published under King's own name with the rest of his stories. That was March of 2002, so about four years later. And one thing that's interesting about Everything's Eventual is that he had these 14 stories that he wanted to put in this collection, and the way that King decided how to order them in the book, which normally most authors make a big deal of, you know, chronologically or alphabetically or thematically, King took a deck of cards and took one whole suit, and then I think he threw the Joker in there, and he gave each card a representation of a story. And so the Little Sisters of Alluria was the sixth of 14 stories and is represented by the six of spades in the deck that he used. So it was very much a random way of doing it. And then he jokes in that book that his next short story collection will be done using tarot cards, which, of course, links right back to the drawing of the three. Yeah. Death, but not for you, Gunslinger. The, the story was published then between books four and five, which would means that it was done prior to King's accident. Although when he puts his author's note in everything's eventual, he mentions that book five is completed. So he gives the title away to that. And the other books that he wrote around the same time as this are Bag of Bones, The Girl Who Loved Tom Gordon. And then I thought it was interesting because in his author's note prior to the, the story starting, he says he had a really hard time coming up with a story about Roland Deschain to give to Silverberg. And then he said one day he was in the shower where he does his best thinking, and he was thinking of the talisman. And he had an image come to him of the white tent. Hmm. Then he realized that he had a story that he could tell. And I'm like, boy, that's really interesting that he's thinking of a book that he wrote, what, 15 years earlier, and not even one of his more famous ones, The Talisman, when he rewrote with Peter Straub. And I was trying to figure out, like, why was he thinking of The Talisman sort of out of the blue like that? But it turns out that he was also writing Black House with ah. Straub, the sequel to The Talisman. So that might have been one of the reasons he was thinking of it. When King wrote The Talisman, he did not necessarily think it had anything to do with The Dark Tower, but once he got around to writing Black House, he firmly placed the other world that we learn about in The Talisman as one of the other worlds yep. that The Dark Tower links us to. And in fact, the whole idea of Twinners comes from The Talisman. So it's something that King carried forward into The Dark Tower stories that as part of the vocabulary of Roland's world. Sure. The book was also published in a Donald Grant edition in 2004. There's only 4,000 copies of those floating around though, so congratulations if you've got one of those. Not only does it include the Little Sisters of Alluria, but it also has the revised version of The Gunslinger, so I think that that was the Grant edition with that. And that has new illustrations by Michael Whelan. 
I've seen a couple of them online. They're pretty good. A little different from Whelan's other illustrations, but nice as well. And then finally, this story has had yet another life as a Marvel comic in 2010 and 2011. It was adapted by Robin Firth and Peter David. And I think it was a five or six issue miniseries that you could pick up that tells the whole story. So if you want a graphic representation of that, you can pick that up. So Jay, you had mentioned earlier that Silverberg does an author's note in Legends for the Little Sisters of Aloria. I had not read that until you shared that with me. So I just read it for the first time earlier today. There's some interesting stuff there. Yeah. When I first started to reread this in the Silverberg collection, I didn't think that it was Silverberg's writing at first. I assumed that this was King writing an intro to his own story. As I kept encountering kind of sloppy generalizations, incomplete summaries, and outright mistakes, (laughs) I couldn't believe what I was reading. There's no way King would mess up this much. And then I finally realized, no, this is Silverberg introducing the first story in the collection. Ah, this makes more sense. It doesn't excuse the sloppiness and the mistakes, but at least I know it's not King doing it. Who edits the editor, right? Yeah, I I, I don't know. He needs a fact checker because like even simple things like Susanna's name is spelled wrong throughout. Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> Silverberg makes the, an interesting, I guess, editorial change here where he refers to the man in black as simply the dark man, which is sort of correct, but it's definitely not something King had decided or established at the point of completing Wizard and Glass. Right. He was never the officially the same person at that point. So it's kind of like Silverberg made a perhaps logical leap and happened to accidentally land on the right thing. He makes a, a big thing about how it uses thematic elements from the Browning poem. And I don't know that it uses thematic elements. I think it just, it uses elements of the text. It takes some names and the idea of the dark tower, but that's about it. Yeah. There's no theme really there or thematic element that it borrows. One of the strangest uh, things that I, I couldn't quite wrap my head around was that Silverberg goes through and summarizes each of the books one at a time. And when he describes the events of the drawing of the three, he simply says that Roland draws Eddie, Susanna, and Jake. Yep. There's no mention whatsoever of Jack Mort. Jack Mort is the third door, is the third person. Jake is not in book two at all. Yep. And it's kind of crazy to me that Silverberg would make that error and that nobody caught it in this publication. While, yeah, again, thematic leap, logical guess, I don't know. I kind of feel like Jake is the third and he is eventually drawn through another door, but that doesn't happen in that book. And it's just not right. I know I'm probably just being overly pedantic here, but it just seems strange for Silverberg to go to this length to summarize the preceding stories and plot lines and and high points of the book so that you understand enough of the world to appreciate Little Sisters of Valoria in and of itself. And then he like kind of tells you all these wrong things. Yeah. It makes you feel like you might have been better off without it at all. Having just finished the series and then reading that summary, 
that would totally not make me want to go and read anything else. Like I would read the Little Sisters of Luria and be like, boy, that was interesting. I don't want to read the series based on that summary of what the rest of the series is going to be like because that didn't make a whole lot of sense. And you wonder who it was written for, right? Because yeah. if someone like you who made a point of finding this book just because they knew there was another Dark Tower and you were rabid to get your hands on new Dark Tower content, that you were willing to go out and spend money on a book that had three stories you didn't want to read so you could read the one story you did. Mm-hmm. The intro is obviously not for you because you would know the story and be like, wait a minute, this isn't what it's about. And then for somebody who's new to this series, would be like, hey, this doesn't make much sense. But let's give Silverberg the benefit of the doubt. It was uh, 1998, so no Wikipedia to do some fact checking there and getting good summaries. You just have to sort of rely on your own memory. And maybe he only read book two when it came out in 88 or 89 or whatever that was and had totally forgotten the details and conflated a bunch of books. But yeah, it could have used a fact checker or even just send it over to King and say, hey, King, I'm sending you a fax. Could you confirm or deny this? Fax? What's a fax? Can you step away from your Zima long enough to take a look at this fax I sent you? I got your fax number in my Rolodex. Shut off the grunge music for a second and make sure your mullet's in good shape. That's the 90s. As you're getting into that, you had mentioned how this sort of fits into the rest of the Dark Tower. And one of the questions I had was, we know what a great short story writer Stephen King is. And I think we agree that this is a pretty good story. Do we think it needed to be a Dark Tower story? And, or... If it did need to be a Dark Tower story, did it need to have Roland as the protagonist? And here's the reason I asked this, Jay, sort of from a thematic standpoint. If we take the Dark Tower series, books one through seven, as sort of, this is Roland's story. This is the magnum opus that we've talked about, and and here's what you need to know about Roland. Mm -hmm. What does writing a prequel like this do to that character? Does it add to anything that we know about the character in that main series of a book? Or is it just sort of a continuing adventures type of thing? Like, hey, I've got this character and it's just as easy to write about him as opposed to Roland's grandfather or Jamie DeCurry or anybody else that we may have encountered. So two questions there. Do you think it needed to be a Dark Tower story and do you think it needed to be Roland? The mental exercise that I put myself through to answer that question is one looking at it from just changing it to a different gunslinger, right? Like you suggested, Jamie DeCurry. We know just enough about Jamie DeCurry through Roland's mentions of him and through the story and Win through the keyhole. And we know what gunslingers are because we've read these other books. So I think it could work, but we also know that Roland is not only a gunslinger, but he's like, in some ways, the best gunslinger. He's the only one to have survived all of those other trials that his, where his comrades fell. I don't know that it necessarily needs to be Roland here. I think if it had been Jamie DeCurry by himself on like some you know, solo quest and he got waylaid by slow mutants and found himself in the, <laughs> with the, the little sisters, I think the rest of the story could have gone exactly the same. Actually, I think my answer would be different if I hadn't read the books, Mm. the other books, versus if I had. Because I do know Roland as a character, and of all the gunslingers that I've ever heard of in Roland's world, he's the one I know best. I have an idea of how Roland specifically would react in certain situations, 
And I can also see a progression or perhaps pre-growth moments in Roland's decision-making and in this story in terms of like the fact that he was tricked by the slow mutants, the fact and, and fell for that, the fact that he wouldn't have escaped the clutches of the little sisters without help. I suspect that the Roland that we meet in the gunslinger wouldn't have fallen for the, the ruse by the slow mutants. Mm. I think he would have just shot all of them and not thought twice about it. Yep. And then killed the dog and then just kept on walking through Aluria. <laughs> right? Like the story just wouldn't have happened. So if I didn't know that about Roland, I guess those subtleties would just go right over my head. Yeah. And I think if you changed it to Jamie DeCurry, I don't know enough about him or the person he might have become later in life or or what have you to appreciate that. It would just be like, oh well. Jamie's not as wise as Roland, or he's not as crafty or wily as Roland, so that's why he fell for the trick. All we get here instead is he hasn't become as calloused and cautious as we know he will later in life. Right. The other thing, I guess looking at it in the other direction of did this need to be a Dark Tower story at all, I think if you take away the fact that this main character is a gunslinger and take away that definition that we have spent eight books learning what it means and kind of letting that sink into our imaginations. I think that the story still works, but the fact that he has the abilities to do what he does, that to resist the sleep, to resist the, I guess, hallucinations, to keep himself still and react when he needs to react and hide when he needs to hide. I I don't know that we would have appreciated the fact that he could do all these things. If we, mm. if he weren't a gunslinger, as we have come to know what gunslingers are, yeah, so I don't know if that really answers the question, except that just as sort of a an exercise. That's well, I think the reason I asked the question and the reason we bring it up is because prequels are inherently difficult. I think mm. you know the character's not going to die; the stakes are by necessity lower. Yeah, we're not at all really concerned about Roland for the most part, because we know come book one, he's going to be in the desert chasing the man in black. Having said that, just sort of as an aside here, I'd read this story before a little behind the scenes. You and I, we did sort of a pilot episode of the, the podcast, and this was the, the story we did it. So I read this story, what, two years ago around? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, when I reread it for this podcast today, I was really concerned when the little sisters brought in a slow mutant to take away the medallion that was around both Roland's neck and the boy who's also in the the tent at first. And I was thinking to myself, oh my God, how's Roland going to get out of this? I had no yeah. I had no remembrance of how he did it. And I was very worried because I'm like, there's no way for him to get out of this. There's got to be some way to do this. And of course, we'll talk a little bit about how that happens. But Having just said that there weren't no, any stakes, King had still done a good job of setting it up. So even as a reader who knew that there weren't any stakes, I was still concerned for Roland and how he was going to get out of the situation. So the nature of prequels, without with the stakes being lower, they need to bring something else to the table. And one of the things that I'm trying to get at is they either need to illuminate the stories that come after it. Mm-hmm. So does this story illuminate the seven or eight books that we read after this? or? Do we get 
something revealed about Roland that we didn't know from the books. And I think you hit on it a little bit. He's a different person than he is when he gets to Tall even, where he's willing to just shoot up the town because he knows that's his way out. He's still wet behind the ears here and willing to shoot at the feet of the slow mutants as opposed to being as callous as he becomes, even though he lost the love of his life in Susan Delgado. He's willing to try to make a connection here. Um, we can see the man who, by the time he gets to the desert, not only is he more callous, but he doesn't have any encumbrances, right? It's just him. Right. And still here in this story, he's still trying to make connections with people. He's trying to make connections with the boy, even the, the dead kid who he finds, he takes the medallion so that he can give it back to his family if he sees the family someday. When he starts to fall in love with the one little sister, he's still trying to make connections there. So I do think it does illuminate something by the one way it illuminates the rest of the book is there is a lot of talk of Ka in this story. Yes. And in particular, the fact that Roland feels as if Ka is watching over him and that he has confidence that he's not going to die in this situation because he believes there are bigger and better things in store from him because of the Dark Tower. Did you say confidence or confidence? Oh, nice one there, Jay. <laughs> <laughs> Was it though? Was it a good one? <laughs> so I think that those are ways that King is sort of expertly able to weave in some of the themes from the series itself and a little bit more about Roland. So to answer my own my own question, I do think that this benefits from being a Dark Tower story and from being a Roland story. We definitely can see some of the person that Roland has already started to become because he is definitely not the same young, like teenage gunslinger that he was when he was in Magus. Correct. But he is not yet as hardened and callous as the gunslinger in Tull. King does a nice job of setting him somewhere in between those two versions of, of this same man. And he does have the, the merciful act of shooting at the feet of the slow mutants, but he also threatens some of the little sisters by saying, remember that kindness, for I have not always been kind. Yep. That might seem like a hollow threat or even an, uh, a meaningless statement to this ancient creature who was like waiting for an opportunity to kill him. But we know Roland. Uh -huh. We know what he's capable of. We know what he already has done at this point in his life. And we know what he's going to do later. By hearing him say, I have not always been kind, that means worlds to us because this is a story of this character who we know from the other books. Yep. So one other way that it's similar to, to what follows, Jay, is that there is a deus ex canine. <laughs> Yes. Instead of Ek Machina? Yeah, I mean, we get to a point where Roland is going to die, except for the fact that there is a dog with a cross marking on his chest that saves the day. Yeah. The dog itself only has this power to save Roland because it, by chance, has this pattern in its fur. Yes. It's just a fluke of the color pattern of, of this dog's fur. And he becomes this cross dog. <laughs> King does a good job of setting up the dog, like from page one of the story. Yeah. 
the dog is the first thing Roland encounters when he comes into Eloria. We know the dog's around. We hear the dog howling throughout the story. We know the dog hasn't gone anywhere. But the fact that the dog leaps and attacks <laughs> at exactly the right moment, at exactly the right person. Yeah, this is a deus ex canine. <laughs> Roland was going to lose at that moment if the dog hadn't done what it did when it did. Yep. But he just shrugs and says, it's Ka. <laughs> and I guess that just works because we know how important Ka is to this universe. We know how important Ka is to Roland. And he's been talking about Ka for this whole story. Every time he needs to even put his own mind at ease. It's like, if Ka wills it, you know. I almost wonder if this dog dies and is reincarnated as Zoe. Yet another animal that is saving Roland from certain death. I also was wondering this morning, like, instead of drawing Eddie and Susanna and Jake, if it would have been better for Roland to just draw three dogs in from another world <laughs> and then had them follow him around because it seems like he would have gotten a lot more done because it's the animals that do the most to help Roland rather than his fellow gunslingers. So instead of like drawing of the three, it'd be like drawing of the wolf pack. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And he's got... He's got what a dog and a billy bumbler, so maybe we add a, like a raccoon and a ferret and something else. Yeah, obviously it's got to be of the canine type variety because Roland does a pretty good job of killing off horses and mules. Yeah, and if ferrets work for Beastmaster, they should work for a gunslinger, right? Absolutely. The main crux of the story is that the little sisters of Aluria are in fact vampires. They're not the exact type of vampires that Father Callahan encounters in Salem's Lot and not the exact type of vampires that come later on, but they're definitely of the vampiric variety. There's a lot of weirdness as far as how they're presented and, and what they're like. I mean, they're made out of doctor bugs. They're wearing this nunnery type garb, and yet they make a point of having a role in noticing that they have a rose on their garments. And he says, that's the sigil of the Dark Tower. Mm -hmm. What's going on with all this vampire stuff? The first thing I would like to point out is that I think King does a phenomenal job of foreshadowing all the vampirism. Mm. When Roland first walks into Eluria and he's getting a bad vibe, there's a, a line about how God always drinks blood. And then when Roland decides, I really need to watch out, something is off about this place, he says to himself, where, Roland? This place has a reddish odor. Uh. Ah. God's drinking blood and this town has a reddish odor. How much more blood symbolism can King just pile on here? And he does it in these wonderfully subtle and poetic ways. Like, I've never heard the term reddish odor before. Right. Somehow it feels right. And it also immediately conjures just the right imagery to make me start thinking in terms of the color of blood and all that. Once you start talking about blood, it's a very small leap to vampires. Right. Especially in this mystical world that we're in. Yeah. That has all sorts of monsters. Yeah. But as to the nature of the vampires, these definitely do seem to be a different creature than what Callahan encountered in Salem's Lot. They're not like any of the types that like Callahan has his his categories like the type type one two and three yeah yeah he's got the type one two and three vampires these seem to be various versions of people who were human beings and then 
became a vampire. That might be the case here because we sort of get the idea that the Jenna, the young one that that Roland falls in love with, is or was recently a human being and then sort of became this other thing. Yep. And we know that, you know, by the end of the story, she definitely is the same type of creature that all of the older uh, vampires are. But the fact that they are one in the same with these doctor bugs and that the doctor bugs are tiny, like almost ant size. That when Roland was trying to choke Mary and he could feel her skin just sort of like moving under his hands, uh, it, that it, it seemed various was the word the king uses. This is nothing like any other vampire we've encountered in, in any of King's books or really in any other vampire stories. I think it's a really interesting approach, Yep. but I suspect these aren't proper vampires, if you will. There's something else that drinks blood. And if that's all you need to call something a vampire, then sure, they're vampires. But the fact that these are like colonies of bugs in the shape of a human and all in one form has its own mind and will and I guess need to drink blood. But if you ring a certain type of bell or you expose something to certain, I guess, daylight or something like that they just poof break apart into a million of the bugs it's cool i like it and the other weird thing about it is they still play by some of the rules of vampires right like the cross obviously has an effect on them yeah the gold medallions that they have are keeping them away and i don't know if it's because the vampires the little sisters believe that, and so therefore it has an effect on them, or if it's part of the rules of, of vampirism. I, I, I don't know. It's not fully explained. I don't think it needs to be for the purposes of this story. It's just an interesting piece of this. Well, that's kind of an interesting point, because here, Roland, who is not himself a believer in any Christian religion, happens to have this Christian medallion. It's not a cross, but it does have a holy symbolism that is enough to in and of itself keep these creatures away yeah they don't want to touch it and we don't ever get the idea that if they touched it it would just cause them discomfort it seems like it would destroy them Mm. and only jenna is the one who's like the youngest or the most recently changed that she can touch it with great pain It, it like chars her flesh but it doesn't kill her she can withstand it momentarily There's something inherent to these medallions that vampire-like creatures can't or won't approach it or touch it. And so it doesn't matter what the belief is or or how much the wearer believes. Roland is able to use it as a defense mechanism, Mm. even though he personally does not give it any value. Whereas if you compare that to Father Callahan at the end of Salem's Lot, he is in his final battle against Barlow, and he holds up a crucifix, a crucifix that he has been using to defend himself against the vampires, that he's used to destroy vampires. And he has a momentary lapse in his own faith. And as soon as that happens, his talisman of the crucifix loses all power. Mm. And Barlow is able to turn the tables on him and basically defeat Callahan. Spoilers for Salem Slop. <laughs> we get all this summarized in the Dark Tower story. So 
why is it that another vampire, I guess it's a different type of vampire, is entirely bound by the faith of the person bearing the, the religious symbol, whereas these vampires, it's the opposite. They are bound by their view of the symbol itself. It seems like they contradict each other. Yeah. And I think that's fine. I guess they don't have to follow the same rules. They're clearly not the same type of creature because Barlow doesn't turn into a a million bugs when he dies. And neither do any of the other vampires that Callahan encounters. Yeah. You know, at the Dixie Pig or when he's retelling his story about his life up until when he meets the other folks. But at the Dixie Pig, the vampires are surrounded by the same Dr. Bugs. Yes. I kept asking myself, are these the same bugs? Because in many ways, they fit the same description. But there's also the fact that Oi was described as being like purpose built to destroy these bugs. Yeah. As if something about Billy Bumblers and the Dr. Bugs, like they've been coexisting in the world as mortal enemies. And there's something inherent to the... I don't know, the anatomy of a Billy Bumbler that they can pick up and kill a Dr. Bug without hurting themselves. Right. But I just pictured something that was maybe the size of at least a squirrel, like some sort of giant beetle Mm. kind of thing that like the size of a raccoon could actually bite, crunch, and spit out. That's what Oi was doing. If it's the size of an ant, what's he doing? Right. It's not big enough. It's like he could have like 20 of them stuck to his tongue and then it didn't seem to line up. Uh, according to like the Stephen King Wikipedia, these are one and the same. You going through all that makes me think that Stephen King should write a uh, a children's book like Ricky Tikki Tavi, except it's about Billy Bumblers and Doctor Bugs instead of mongooses and cobras. Exactly. I think it might be mongoose, not mongooses. It's not Canadian mongooses. <laughs> I'm sorry, Canada mongooses. <laughs> If we haven't made it clear already, we should right, come out and say it. We like this story a lot. Yeah, this is an awesome Dark Tower story. One of the things that I really like about it, and Jay and I have been talking about this, and he's eventually going to convince me that book one is the best of all the Dark Tower novels, mm-hmm. but it really picks up all the best parts of what I think a Dark Tower story should be. So it's very Western, right? Like. Guy with his dying horse coming into a town, the small town piece of it, the fact that there's this mystery around it, the sense of the world that exists in this story is, I think, a lot of what I was hoping for for the entire series. Like when Roland comes to Aluria, he says that he's been hoping to find a horse doctor for a while. Yeah. Because the horse that he has is not doing well. By the time he gets to book one, you don't have any sense that there's going to be a horse doctor anywhere. Like there's veterinarians still like, no, they're way past that. He goes to the sheriff's office and the sheriff is keeping like a diary of like, here's what's happening in town. Here's the offenses that are happening. And here's a ledger of all the criminals and the crimes that they've committed. Like you still get a sense in this story that the world that Roland is in is still a living, breathing world where people conduct regular business. The other boy that he meets in the hospital, his job, his career was helping wagon trains go from one remote town to another remote town. This is something that the American West has experienced for, you know, like 
over a hundred years of its history with people going from the East Coast to the West Coast and establishing new settlement. Yep. And he and his brother, they they rode like before and after the wagon trains and helped to keep them secure and safe and helped to guide them. The fact that he could do this multiple times, that this could be his job, uh-huh. speaks to the fact that, as you say, civilization still was holding on. There was enough of that left. There was enough society left. There were enough people left. There were enough resources left for people to make the trek from one town to another, for people to say, I think I can have a better life. Let me continue or start over in some way. Not just like, oh, well, I'm a slow mutant now. I guess I'll go hide in a cave. <laughs> and the slow mutants were around. They were yeah. in the logbook that Roland read from the sheriff's office. There is a sheriff's office. There, was a, there were two saloons. There was a church. This town at one point was a pretty lively place to be. Yep. And it was a, a lot like all of the Old West towns that we have in our imagination. That's what makes Roland the character as a gunslinger, as sort of a prototypical cowboy slash loner slash gunfighter slash very dangerous individual who just rolls into town and makes everything worse (laughs) and still being a romantic figure for all of that. This is that place. This is the stage on which the character of Roland the gunslinger, I think, works best. Yeah. We get to have a little bit more of that. I think in some ways, this is sort of an extension as a prequel, but an extension nonetheless of what we get in The Gunslinger and all of the great things about book one, or maybe I should say all the things that make book one great. Yep. A lot of those are here too. It also still has some of the things that make the larger Dark Tower series special. And that's the addition of other genres and other types of ideas. The fact that we have an Old West type of setting and vampires and mutants and weird versions of religions that seem at the same time familiar and very strange to us, but we understand their power. Yeah, I mean, all of these are things that make the Dark Tower series great and that make mostly these are the things that book one established and that made us fall in love with this story and these characters. And plus, I mean, I think this can't be said enough. It's shorter than everything else. (laughs) King tells a good, tight story set in that world. Yep. Just a couple of characters. Yeah. Clear beginning, middle, and end. Drama, romance, action. And he's out. There's a lot to say for that. That the story has that that I like. That there's not these offshoots and rambling cul-de-sacs that he's going down. He, He tells a story like a short story. Um, although he even admits like he says he can't he can't help himself but when he gets into the dark tower starting to write an epic so this does turn from a short story into a novella you know it's over 100 pages long but mm-hmm. still really good stuff we will get right into our fun stuff jay because we can't do one of these podcasts anymore without fun stuff so what you got for fun stuff in little sisters of Aluria? oh i got a few fun stuff items uh one was something i touched on earlier and that is this Wonderful line. God of the cross was just another religion which taught that love and murder were inextricably bound together. That in the end, God always drank blood. I've had that page dog-eared for like 15 years on my shelf (laughs) because of that line. It's such a good one. Yep. Organized religion, man. 
I I'm going to go back to King's author's note, and he makes a very astute point. King does when he says, "You don't need to have read the Dark Tower novels to enjoy it," and I think that that's a really good summary. Like you can gain more by reading the Dark Tower novels, but it really does stand alone as a good independent piece of short story writing. And I wouldn't have any qualms about giving this to someone and saying, hey, enjoy this. I mean, yeah, there's a couple references to Susan Delgado. But other than that, it does a good job of standing alone, giving you just enough details to know what's happening in this world. There are references to Susan Delgado in book one, and we had no idea who the heck she was. Right. I don't think King really knew who she was. She just represented an idea of something in Roland's past that touched him deeply or affected him in a very powerful way. But of course, by the time he wrote this story, he had published book four and we knew exactly who Susan Delgado was. I wonder if you kind of fit this in though with the larger series of stories. I have often heard people make the recommendation that if you have a hard time getting into book one to skip it and start with book two and then read book one as sort of a prequel. Once you've met Roland and seen what he does in book two, getting to know him in book one in that order might make it more palatable in some way. What if this were that intro story? What if this really were the first story? So you meet Roland as this younger version of himself, this not so hard, not so hard to relate to character. And it's just bite sized enough to say, okay, you've now aroused my appetite. Yep. I want more of this character. I want more of this world. What else is there? Oh, let me introduce you to eight more books. You know? Right. If someone says I'm struggling a little bit, okay. Put that book aside for a minute, read Aloria, and then come back to the gunslinger, see how you feel. Yeah. I mean, there's no reason that King couldn't write a number of stories like this set in this world. I think that the world rich enough that that would be a a good entree point for a lot of this. Yeah. I found myself wondering something very similar to that idea, which is what if instead of writing books five, six, and seven, as we know them, King had written 10 shorter stories along the lines of Little Sisters of Valoria. Would we be better off with that? Even if some of them continued and even concluded the story, but did it in smaller pieces and smaller steps, but they were focused and tighter and more self-contained like this one was. Yeah. I wonder if that would have been ultimately a better way of telling the story. I sort of get the sense that Wolves of the Call is sort of like that. Yeah. I mean, it's probably the one that's most similar to this, right? That it's a fairly self-contained story. It's in a very similar type of set. You know, this is an abandoned town that's been taken over by vampires and slow mutants. Wolves of the Call is a town under duress from outsiders trying to come in. And then a gunslinger walks in and, and, and solves the problem. I think we both said that that story could have been a little bit shorter. That would have been one way to handle that is have a bunch of stories like that of the gunslinger in the West. What's he doing? Yeah. What situations could he come by? So what else you got for fun stuff? I thought that it was really cool that King uses tabulation again. <laughs> yes. Or was this the first time? I, I can't remember where we saw it last time that I, I brought it up. One of my favorite words... It was fun to see King using it again. Yeah. Another fun stuff item I have is that there is a saloon in Eloria called the Bustling Pig, which to me sounds an awful lot like the Dixie Pig. Uh-huh. 
what do you think King's doing here? Is this just some subconscious thing where he's just going to name all the saloons some kind of pig reference? <laughs> Maybe. Or is it just anywhere where evil has shown up? There's like some, uh, it's a franchise. <laughs> Open up your evil, your evil saloon. Call it something pig. Something pig. Ah, that's interesting. I hadn't thought of that. Yeah, I didn't notice that until uh, you pointed it out, but that's a good catch. Hmm. What if you called it some pig? <laughs> some pig. That's right. Charlotte's Web reference, everyone. So my final one is more of when Roland and Jenna leave the tent and Roland looks back, he realizes that it's all been a glamour. So when he's inside the tent, it's sort of this pure white and everything's white and it looks really, really long. He can barely see to the ends of it. It's like football fields stretched out. And then when he gets out, he looks back and he just sees sort of a grubby, drab tent with a cross on it. Mm. I don't know if it's because of it's the Western setting as well. And I think he and Jenna climb up into the mountains. But for whatever reason, it always seems to remind me of MASH with the drab tents and the yeah. the red cross on it and you know the setting with the mountains around. And maybe it's all the talk of doctors throughout this and the hospital thing that, that make me think of that. But this story could use some Hawkeye and BJ and Trapper John and Frank Burns, Major Winchester. Do you think turning into Dr. Bugs is painless? <laughs> We're editing that out. <laughs> <laughs> Screw you, that's hilarious. That is all for this episode of Two Guys to the Dark Tower Came. Thanks, Jay. Thank you. Links to all of our contact information is available in the show notes. You can email us at twoguysdarktower at gmail.com. And our Twitter handle is at twoguysdarktower. You can also find us on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash twoguysdarktower or our Facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash twoguysdarktower. If you like the show, please rate us on iTunes. Next episode, join us as we start our coverage of the Dark Tower adjacent book, Hearts in Atlantis by discussing the first story, Low Men in Yellow Coats, parts one through four. So, Jay, we're going to do the entire book, even though not all of the stories are Dark Tower adjacent. There's enough there that I think it's going to be interesting and a fun read. The first story, Low Men in Yellow Coats, is directly adjacent to Dark Tower. Yep, it's the reason why we're covering this book. It is a long story, even longer than Little Sisters of Allure, so we've broken it up a little bit. So. When you come back, be sure to have read parts one through four so you can join us in our discussion, and we will not be spoiling anything beyond parts one through four, so fear not if you can't read it all by then. For Jay Russo, I'm Sean McCurr. Thanks for listening. my point.